You are listening to Community Supported Radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Monday, December 28th. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Today, following NPR headlines and regional weather, we have National Native News, NPR reports on suicide awareness and prevention, an important topic during the holiday season. The Public News Service reports on a California group working on new approaches to curb domestic violence, and also on adult education programs for which demand has surged during the pandemic. Closing out today's newscast, we have Jim Hightower with a commentary. At 6.30, we bring you WINGS, the Women's International News Gathering Service, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. President-elect Joe Biden says his transition team has encountered roadblocks on crucial national security matters. As NPR's Franca Ordonez reports, Biden accuses political leaders in the Trump administration of acting irresponsibly. President-elect Biden says the Trump administration has hollowed out key security agencies of the U.S. government and that political leaders at the Department of Defense and Office of Management and Budget are holding back critical information. And right now, as our nation is in a period of transition, we need to make sure that nothing is lost in the handoff between administrations. The president-elect was speaking in Delaware after meeting with members of his foreign policy and national security teams. This is not the first time the team has complained of a lack of cooperation, something the Defense Department has strongly denied. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The investigation into the Christmas Day suicide bombing in Nashville, Tennessee, is now focused on determining a motive. Samantha Max of member station WPLN reports local, state, and federal agents are all on the hunt for answers. Now that officials have identified Anthony Warner as the bomber, they're trying to understand why he blew up an RV in the middle of Nashville's tourism district. Tennessee Bureau of Investigation Director David Rausch says agents are interviewing neighbors, relatives, and others who knew Warner. We're all taking pieces of the the puzzle, uh, working to uh, determine what the motivation was for this individual. Rausch says officials are looking into theories about a potential paranoia over 5G, the ultra-wideband wireless standard that will enable unprecedented global connectivity. For NPR News, I'm Samantha Max in Nashville. The House of Representatives has voted to increase relief checks, pandemic relief checks, to $2,000 as President Trump had demanded. It next goes to the Senate where it is expected to die. Southwest Airlines says it's withdrawing threats of furloughs for thousands of workers, as well as pay cuts now that President Trump has signed the coronavirus relief bill. It includes up to $15 billion for U.S. airlines to keep employees on the payroll through March. The number of new coronavirus infections in California is rising. An additional 33,000 were confirmed yesterday. Governor Gavin Newsom says most of the state is seeing hospital admissions go down. But he says that's not the case in Southern California. 
12 to 15,000 cases a day uh, just in the last few weeks. It's obviously having a big impact, taking a big toll on our hospitals. On Wall Street today, the Dow climbed 204 points. This is NPR. Sweden's parliament has been recalled from Christmas recess to fast-track a proposed law that would give the Swedish government more power to try to curb the spread of the coronavirus amid a second wave. That includes limiting gatherings and public transportation and possibly closing shops. If approved, it will mark a departure for Sweden's hands-off pandemic response. Turning to Southeast Asia, where until this month, Thailand had been largely spared by the pandemic. But as Michael Sullivan reports from Bangkok, cases there have started to surge. Thailand confirmed 144 new cases today, the majority of which were locally transmitted infections, according to the public health ministry. The governor of a province which recently saw a spike in COVID cases was among those who tested positive over the weekend. Most of these new cases, including the governor, were asymptomatic. Thailand has had almost no locally transmitted infections for months now until an outbreak among migrant workers at a seafood market was detected earlier this month. The province has been put under lockdown, but confirmed cases have been reported in 43 other provinces since, including the capital, Bangkok. For NPR News, I'm Michael Sullivan in Bangkok. The number of passengers screened at U.S. airports yesterday was the highest since mid-March when demand for flights plummeted because of the pandemic. The TSA says more than 1.2 million people passed through airport security checkpoints. I'm Barbara Klein, NPR News. Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight will be mostly cloudy, then becoming clear with a low around 29. Tuesday will be sunny with a high near 55, and Tuesday night will be mostly clear with a low around 32. In Sacramento tonight, skies will be partly cloudy with a low around 33. Areas of frost are likely on Tuesday before 10 a.m., then sunny with a high near 58, and increasing clouds overnight with a low around 33. In Truckee tonight, mostly cloudy skies will gradually clear with a low around 9. Tuesday will be sunny with a high near 38 and a low around 12 with mostly clear skies. And in Angels Camp tonight, skies will be partly cloudy with a low around 32. Tuesday will be sunny with a high near 55 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 33. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Tribal leaders are calling for the full restoration of Bears Ears National Monument in Utah. The Trump administration slashed its size three years ago, but the Navajo Nation and others hope the next administration will reverse the order. Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports. Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez, along with several tribal and county officials in Utah, want President-elect Joe Biden to reestablish the monument's nearly 2 million acre original size after he takes office next month. During the 2020 campaign, Biden signaled he may use the Antiquities Act to restore Bears Ears and the nearby Grand Staircase Escalani National Monument, which was shrunk by half in 2017. The former vice president has also suggested 
suggested his administration could make even more conservation designations in the West. The Navajo, Hopi, Zuni, Ute Indian Tribe, and Ute Mountain Ute Tribe make up the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition. They say the area is their ancestral home, and they depend on the land for traditional livelihoods and cultural practices. The tribes worry the area is in danger of looting, vandalism, and the impacts of energy development. President Barack Obama established Bears Ears near the end of his presidency in 2016, but the next year, President Donald Trump reduced its size by 85 percent. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff. The South Dakota School of Mines and Technology recently held its commencement ceremony. As Richard Tubles reports, one student has become the 50th person to graduate under a unique program that supports Native students. When Tristan Peacott was growing up in Eagle Butte on the Cheyenne River Reservation, he recalls one of his favorite pastimes. I remember I'd take apart VCRs and DVD players and just like everything when I was little. And the, the electronics fascinated me. That innate curiosity would play a big role in his future. His family moved around the United States, but he always longed to be back in South Dakota. I have my family out here, my grandpa, my aunties, my cousins, my uncles. And, you know, I'm moving around. I didn't get to see a whole lot of them. And when he'd return for visits, the school of mine started to play an important role. If we drive by the school, my dad would always tell me, it's like, someday, that's where you're going to go. Someday I want you to go there. And I think that stuck with me a bit more than I really paid attention to. Peacock graduated from high school in Arizona and eventually set his sights on the South Dakota School of Mines. I applied to five other schools across the nation. I got into all of them. But when it came down to it, the price was really attractive because you really can't beat price at mines. Peacock was initially overwhelmed when he first got to campus, but he met fellow Native American students students and eventually learned about the Teoshbae Scholar Program. The program is designed to increase the number of Native Americans graduating from mines in the scientific fields of engineering and mathematics with the necessary financial and cultural support. Those guys come from the same circumstances I do, and I see them as being really successful at it. And regardless of whether or not I was involved in that community all the time, they were still there to help me when I needed it. Peacott walks away with his bachelor's in electrical engineering and has accepted a job with IBM, which starts in a few months. And as far as being the 50th Teoshbae Scholar Program graduate... It feels kind of weird. It's like, man, I just happened to end up at the 50th spot. It feels like a, a kind of a cool way to, to close that chapter of my life, you know? Peacott looks forward to his future and says the Teoshbae Scholar Program made it possible. He hopes to give back to his tribe someday, somehow, when the opportunity presents itself. In Rapid City... I'm Richard Tubles. Tribal water rights settlements for the Navajo Nation and the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes were enacted in the COVID-19 Relief and Government Spending Bill signed by President Trump Sunday. The spending package includes a number of provisions for tribes across the country for COVID-19 aid, funding for language programs and education, and funding for NAGPRA enforcement. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is NPR's Life Kit. I'm Ritu Chatterjee. I cover mental health for NPR. And today we are talking about something that's long been a taboo topic. Suicide. In 2018, the most recent year we have data for, more than 40,000 people died by suicide in the United States. And a recent report by the CDC suggests that about 11% of adults are having suicidal thoughts during this pandemic. 
and that number is higher among 18 to 24-year-olds. But here's the thing about suicide. Research shows that it's preventable, and a recent national survey showed that Americans know this and they want to help someone who may be at risk. But they might not know how to help. A lot of times folks feel like suicide prevention is only something that professionals can do. That's De Quincey Lazine. He's a psychologist and has struggled with thoughts of suicide himself, and he chairs the lived experience division of the American Association of Suicidology. Lazine says certainly getting help from a mental health professional is very important. But there's so much each one of us can do before a loved one gets to the point of being in suicidal crisis. And often it is that simple um, stuff of showing that you care and showing up for somebody and being there for them. Uh, but there's also a lot of things that people without any type of psych training can do. This episode will help you identify the warning signs that someone you know or love may be thinking about dying and how to keep them from going further down that path. Let's start with how can you tell if a loved one might be feeling suicidal? Lazine says watch out for certain warning signs. The most obvious is probably just um, talking about death and talking about suicide. Um, bitching it either casually or even just jokingly um, or specifically talking about it for themselves. Then there are the less obvious signs, like sudden changes in behavior. For example, if your friend is usually cheerful and you notice that they've been grumpy lately. There would be changes in their mood, um, usually towards greater agitation or greater sadness, um, increased anger and irritability changes in substance use, so um, radically increasing the amount of substance use or beginning to use substances if they hadn't done that before. There are some changes in um, sleep or eating. Now, during this pandemic, a lot of people may be experiencing these changes in behavior, sleep patterns, moods, but it doesn't mean that they are all thinking about dying. I spoke with psychologist Ursula Whiteside. She studies suicide prevention at the University of Washington. And she also started a website called Now Matters Now, which features stories of survivors of suicide attempts. Whiteside says those warning signs we talked about, many of them are also signs of other mental illnesses. A lot of the signs that somebody's having increased risk for suicide are similar to the signs that people are having increased depression symptoms or anxiety symptoms or substance use problems. However, these mental illnesses do put people at a higher risk of suicide. But it can take a while before someone goes from just being depressed to feeling so hopeless that they don't want to live anymore. And that gives us plenty of opportunities for prevention. The goal is to identify and help people with these mental health problems before they get to a point of crisis. Whiteside says one more warning sign to look out for is when someone withdraws from friends and families and their regular activities, especially virtual ones. Meaning they're not responding to phone calls or they're not joining in on maybe a Zoom call with family or they're not on social media. That's one time that it makes sense to get curious about what's going on with your friend when people start to disappear. So takeaway number one, identifying the warning signs of suicide, which also overlap with signs of depression, anxiety, substance use problems. That brings us to the next step. What do you do if you detect any of these warning signs? 
first thing Whiteside says is check in. Ask if they're doing okay and let them know that you're there for them if they need you. She says if you're unable to talk to them directly, leave a voicemail, write a letter, send a text message. It seems small, but she says it can have a big effect. And a message like that might say something like, you know, refer to a memory that you have of them, like a positive memory and say that you miss them or say that you're rooting for them. Also, she says, be prepared to not hear back, but keep checking in, especially if they don't respond. Because remember, not responding is a strong sign that they're struggling. When people's lives are really hard, they often fade out, as we talked about. And this is a way to just kind of keep pulling that person back to the reality of your friendship or your or your family. Studies suggest that a lack of connectedness is an important risk factor in suicide, especially for young people. Caring messages and check-ins can bring back that sense of connection to loved ones. So takeaway number two is check-in with your loved ones, especially if you suspect they're struggling. And be prepared to check-in often, even if they don't reply. So you've called, sent messages, and your loved one has even responded and confessed to you that they're feeling depressed or overwhelmed and hopeless. How do you know if they're thinking about ending their own life? The best thing to do, experts say, is ask them directly. Now, I know this can be really hard to do. Here's how Whiteside says she would approach it. I might say, you know, a lot of people... Uh, I know, have been having suicidal thoughts during this period, especially when they're going through things similar to what you're going through. And I think it makes sense that some people just, you know, want want to not feel this way anymore. Um, is that something that's going on for you? Because I'd like to see if there are some things I could do to be helpful. She says, unlike what many people think, asking about suicide does not make it more likely that they will attempt to take their own life. But Whiteside says, if you broach the topic, don't be judgmental about how they feel. You're asking because you want to be helpful, not because you're going to call 911. Now, calling 911 is something you should not do unless someone has already hurt themselves or they are in imminent danger and are unwilling to keep themselves safe. Whiteside says the reason is because hospitals may not even admit them to a psychiatric unit unless they have a plan to act in the next 24 or 48 hours. And calling 911 can take away the person's sense of agency, make them feel scared if the police get involved. Because calling the police can sometimes escalate things. And it can destroy their trust in both the medical system as well as in you. Also, when talking about suicidal thoughts, Whiteside says, couch it as a common experience because it is. In fact, she says many more people consider suicide than the number of people who attempt it. So the vast, vast majority of people who have thoughts will not go on to kill themselves. I think there's a lot of hope in that. That's takeaway number three. If you're worried that a loved one is feeling suicidal, just ask them directly. And remember, suicidal thoughts don't always mean that someone will act on them. But how do you tell if somebody might be in suicidal crisis, as in they need help right now or very soon? Whiteside says it can be pretty hard to know, even if you're in the same room with them, because they might not tell you. But there are more subtle signs you can look for. What goes along with it is difficulty thinking, clearly. Uh, People often use fewer words and have a harder time communicating. 
Um, they say things like, I can't do this. I'm just so stressed. They might just sit there really quietly, quietly for long periods of time, sort of spaced out. Um, when, when stress gets to a certain level, um, people act, often act differently. And if you see that someone you love is going through something like this and you're really worried they might act on their suicidal thoughts, again, the best thing to do is ask them directly. It's hard to do, but there's a handy set of six questions you can use called the Columbia Protocol. It's developed by researchers at Columbia University, and you can find it with a quick Google search. It can help you figure out if someone is at low or high risk of attempting suicide. The protocol has questions like, have you wished you were dead? or wish you would go to sleep and not wake up? And have you had any intention of acting on these thoughts? Someone who answers yes is at high risk, in which case you may need to act fast. But for a lot of people who have fleeting suicidal thoughts, the urge to act on them can come very suddenly. Ursula Whiteside has interviewed several survivors of suicide attempts. What they said was that you know, something really bad happened, uh, a fight with a partner, like a loss of a relationship, a loss of a job, and this overwhelming urge to end their life and end their pain came over them. But the good news here is that these intense feelings are also fleeting. They last anywhere between a few hours to a maximum of one to two days. Your job during this time is to help your loved one calm down and not act on their feelings. Here's a stop, drop, and roll for when you're on fire emotionally. Whiteside says the first step is to put out that emotional fire. You're at like a 90 out of 100 when you're in that overwhelming state. You're trying to bring this down to a level where you can think clearly again. She says the quickest way to do that is to ask the person to use ice or cold water. Using like a cold shower on your face or putting your face in ice water or even using an ice pack. And doing this on repeat. She says cold changes our physiology, calms us down, and it's a quick way to reset our emotions. If you're in the same room with your loved one, go get them an ice pack and put it on their face and neck. If you're talking to them on the phone or on a video call, just offer to do it with them. Go to your fridge, get an ice pack and apply it to your face while they do the same thing. It'll make it more likely that they will do it with you. The next thing Whiteside says is to remind them that these intense suicidal thoughts are fleeting. So the second step, she says, is to make no important decisions, especially deciding to die. So not panicking, ignoring thoughts that you don't care if you die, stop using drugs and alcohol um, and wait. And the third step, she says, is make eye contact with them. That's a difficult but powerful pain reliever. It's like when you look in someone's eyes, you know, there's not much else that grabs our attention, like looking in someone's eyes. Uh, It can drag you out of your like deepest, almost edge of sleep when you're sitting in a classroom and the teacher looks into your eyes. Like it'll just jolt you awake, but also it can be used to drag yourself out of a negative brain space. And be prepared to stick around with your loved one until the crisis is passed. That's our takeaway number four. If your loved one is in suicidal crisis, remember, these intense urges are fleeting. So help them wait it out and help them calm down using Whiteside's stop, drop and roll exercise. 
For more Life Kit, check out our other episodes. We've got episodes about managing anxiety and mindfulness. You can find those at npr.org slash lifekit. And if you love Life Kit and want more, subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash lifekit newsletter. If you've got a good tip, leave us a voicemail at 202-216-9823 or email us a voice memo at lifekit at npr.org. This episode was produced by Megan Kane. She's the managing producer. Beth Donovan is the senior editor. Our digital editors are Beck Harlan and Claire Lombardo. And our editorial assistant is Claire Marie Schneider. I'm Ritu Chatterjee. Thanks for listening. In response to tensions between communities of color and law enforcement, some groups working to prevent domestic violence want to rely less on police and more on unarmed local intervention teams. A 2015 national hotline survey found 75% of survivors who called 911 said they regretted doing so. Colseria Henderson with the California Partnership to End Domestic Violence says perpetrators often are released after a few days and then seek revenge. Overwhelmingly, survivors felt that inviting law enforcement in either did not help their safety or actually made them less safe. Survivors also suffer financially when the authorities incarcerate or deport the family breadwinner. So advocates are looking at options beyond the criminal legal system. They might train community volunteers to intervene in domestic disputes or use a restorative justice model to engage survivors and their partners. Mark Philpart with the Alliance for Boys and Men of Color in Oakland says societal norms have allowed violence, racism, and misogyny to flourish. His group has launched a campaign called Healing Together that encourages men to embrace healthy definitions of masculinity. We look at it from a public health perspective to be able to prevent it, to be able to interrupt it, and to be able to get to the root cause of why people are violent. Kat Brooks with the Justice Teams Network helped launch Mental Health First, an Oakland hotline program people can call instead of 911 for help de-escalating psychiatric crises. Brooks also is working on a guide for communities to start their own hyper-local response teams. I want to see people that look and talk and have the lived experience of the people that are going through the crisis responding inside of that community. In September, Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill that would have funded pilot programs to address domestic violence without involving police. He cited disagreement over which agency should house the effort. For Public News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. In California, adult educators are pressing lawmakers to prioritize short-term retraining programs when the new session kicks off in January. Budgets for adult education programs were cut during the Great Recession and have still not recovered, although some experts say they'll be key to economic recovery after the pandemic. Marina Kravtsova came here from Russia nine years ago and loved her English as a second language class so much she became a registrar at San Mateo Adult School. She says ESL is a game changer for many immigrants. I remember feeling like a baby who cannot express ourselves. So it was so difficult and depressing in the beginning. But the adult school, it helped us a lot. We gained back our confidence. 
In the recession-era budget cuts, salaries in adult education were depressed, which led to a shortage of teachers. And that contributed to the state's current shortage of essential workers, from home health care nurses to electricians, power line technicians, and plumbers. Matthew Kogan teaches ESL to adults in the L.A. Unified School District. He says the state will prosper as schools train people for better-paying jobs. In California, many employers feel they're having trouble finding skilled workers. And so we feel we're also helping people get the skills that our businesses need. Andre Lucas is Dean of Automotive Skills and Technical Trades with San Diego Continuing Education. He says grants allow them to offer free short-term courses in high-demand fields like heating and air conditioning, auto repair, and welding. We also give students opportunities to continue with their education while they're working and then move up in their careers. But adult ed programs say only with adequate funding can they retrain the workforce and improve the fortunes of the tens of thousands of Californians thrown out of work by the COVID-19 shutdowns. For Public News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. Closing out today's newscast, we have Jim Hightower with a commentary. Ho, ho, ho! Wait till you hear about the gifts I gave to some of America's power elites for Christmas. To each of our Congress critters, I sent my fondest wish that from now on they receive the exact same income, health care, and pensions that we average citizens get. If they receive only the American average, it might make them a little bit more humble and less cavalier about ignoring the needs of regular folks. To the stockings of GOP leaders who've so eagerly debased themselves to serve the madness of Donald Trump, I added individual spritzer bottles of fragrances like Essence of Integrity and Urdo Self-Respect to help cover up their stench. And in the stockings of Democratic congressional leaders, I put Spice of Viagra and Bouquet du Grassroots to stiffen their spines and remind them of who they represent. For America's CEOs, my gift is a beautifully boxed brand new set of corporate ethics. It's called the Golden Rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Going to pollute someone's neighborhood? Then you have to live there, too. Going to slash wages and benefits? Then slash yours as well. Going to move your manufacturing to sweatshops in China? Then put your office right inside the worst sweatshop. Executive life won't be as luxurious, but CEOs would glow with a new purity of spirit. To the Wall Street hedge fund hucksters who've conglomerated, plundered, and degraded hundreds of America's newspapers, I've sent copies of Journalism for Dummies and offered jobs for each of them in their stripped-down Dickensian newsrooms. Good luck to each. This is Jim Hightower saying, And what better gift to the Trump family, Donald, Ivanka, and Jared, Eric, Donnie Jr., and the whole nest of them, than to wish that they live with each other constantly and permanently? No, really, no need to thank me. Each of you deserve it. Hightower's commentaries are brought to you by the Hightower Lowdown, the monthly newsletter with Hightower's take on what Wall Street and Washington are up to. For information, visit HightowerLowdown.org. That's our newscast for this evening. The KBMR Evening News airs Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. and is produced by Emory Audio Productions. If you've heard something on this newscast you'd like to hear again, you can go to kvmr.org where you can listen on demand. 
Coming up next, we bring you Wings, the women's international news gathering service, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For KVMR and Emory Audio Productions, I'm Charlotte Peterson, wishing you a fabulous evening.